With a spate of recent news stories about fires and other incidents forcing closures of over 20 food processing and distribution centers in the United States, Canada, and Europe this year, people have started wondering if there has been a concerted effort to undermine food security in and around the industrialized world. Comparing to previous years, there is a noticeable uptick in incidents, but taken in the broader context of a system consisting of tens of thousands, not just dozens, of functioning facilities, the apparent crisis appears manageable at worst, or highly overblown at best. To help us sort out this confusion, frequent guest and author James LaFond joins us to talk about this potential disruption, as well as the deeper historical roots around food distribution and political control. I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Tonight uh, we have a very special guest who has been on myth before, uh, James LaFond. Uh, I'm also joined by Nick, my co-host. Um, and before we get into the topic of tonight, I wanted to field a uh, listener question uh, regarding uh, James James's uh, previous, uh, I think, appearance on our show, but I wasn't sure. And then also ask James what he's been up to. The listener wanted to, to know, uh, he was listening to an old myth of the 20th century episode with James, and James made a point about the dichotomy between love, peace, worldview, and an honor, truth, worldview, and how might makes right uh, is a nerd's perversion of the latter. So I had to reread that a couple times to really try to understand maybe what he was trying to get at. But first of all, James, do you recall saying that? And if you do, or even if you don't, do you have anything to expand on that? Because I was uh, curious what uh, the meaning was behind that. Oh, uh, I, I doubt if I could recall what I said yesterday when I went over that was. No, I don't remember saying that. It sounds okay to me. Uh, but the it sounds like his contention is that the notion that might makes right is a nerd's perversion of the honor truth worldview as opposed to the love peace worldview. Got a bunch of likes. I didn't really understand oh. it, to be honest, <laughs> but it sounded profound. So I was hoping you could help us. <laughs> I mean, it's something he said. It's not something I said, right? All right. Well, <laughs> To the last pirate <laughs> at Corsair was that, 21. Adam, was C. that on our pr- program where we discussed Alfred Rosenberg's book? Because that Some is, people were wondering that if that's kind of where it was from. I, I don't recall, but uh, I just wanted to uh, yeah. do a little uh, interactive um, Q&A, I suppose, with uh, 
in experience. That was something that the last that's something that the last pirate put in. That's his handle on Twitter. He, uh, ah, he I know who that is. He sent me a book he wrote, and I was able to read. I was, I was having eye trouble. I was only able to read 40 pages, but I did a review of the book. I liked what I read. Uh, nice. It was called, it was titled The King of All Things. It was about masculinity and warfare. Okay. You know, so uh, I, I thought, I thought what I read of the book uh, made a lot of sense to me. Uh, I was just wondering if that quote was something I had said because I don't recall saying it, but it sounded pretty cool. So if I did say it, uh, uh, I guess I'll let it stand and not try to ruin it by expanding on it. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, we'll let the listener decide. I don't really, I don't really know either. <laughs> James, did I, did I hear you open a beer? Because I know it wasn't Adam. Oh, uh, yes. Well, apparently I yeah. succeeded in turning Thank, up thanks, my thanks, computer. Thanks, Nick. That was a very subtle jab, um, but not so yeah, subtle. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's a session lager. Yeah, yes, it's, uh, it's like a low-carb, low-alcohol beer, Hofbrau. Uh, I'm out here in eastern, southeastern Pennsylvania where uh, beer is above average. Well, and and you were telling us before we started that I got a Mexican beer. Uh, I have a I have a vegetable broth drink. Does that oh. make me square enough? <laughs> Does that meet your expectations? Yeah, it's quite good actually. Um, but um, well, I guess that as a segue into some topic, uh, I wonder how much longer the beer will be available for. Yeah. Is that is that what we're talking about yeah. today, Adam? Yeah. So another uh listener, he wrote in, um I don't have his uh his handle in front of me, nor do I know if he'd like me to even share that. But uh this is actually based on a uh a reader who uh, contacted the show uh and suggested we talk about this um alleged uh story that there is a series of fires that are occurring throughout the world. Uh, there have been approximately 18 in the United States. There have been maybe five or so in Europe over the past, uh, I don't know, month or two. And uh, Ice Age Farmer has been talking about it. Um, I have a little bit of uh, hesitation to know if this means anything, to be honest. But the contention is that there is some sort of concerted effort to make a food shortage or create a bottleneck in the food supply network, at least, uh, let alone the entire agricultural production system and then processing, distribution, and retailing. Because there's there's lots of different components, right? Uh, it's not just the stores. It's obviously the warehouses behind them, and then the farms. And then also, with this uh, war in Ukraine, uh, there is has been, and still is, at least in Europe, a concern that there will be a shortage of fertilizer, because uh, that is one of the chief exports coming from Russia and Ukraine, uh, given that natural gas is a, a key feeder uh, using the uh, Haber-Bosch process to make fertilizer. Uh, you can actually make it doing other 
you know, using other techniques, but it is the most efficient way to do it. So in terms of uh, cost, that's the cheapest way. And there's been uh, a lot of sanction talk uh, about natural gas and you have to buy it in rubles, etc. So that's a little bit of a risk, I would say. I don't think it's a certainty, though. And what we do know is that there have been these, uh, these fires. What I do not know, however, is, is that amount, 18 in the United States, 5 plus in Europe, is that more than normal? And I tried to look into this a little bit more, and I'm sad to say, but I'll, I'll just be honest, the only place I actually found any attempt to answer the question, is this number higher than normal, was from Snopes. And, you know, I, I completely don't trust that website. But what they did was they, they put a list of articles from previous years of fires. And you can click on them. And they're an external website. So it's not like Snopes is like, you know, I, I don't think, like acquiring web domains for, you know, 36 other uh, random websites. And then uh, just for this dumb story, I don't think that is very likely. So I think it's more likely that the links are actually accurate and their interpretation of it, you know, you could sort of dispute. But the fact is, if we assume that those websites are not completely made up and their timestamps, you could see that they, these articles came out in 2019, for example, that there were fires uh, during the year. Uh, I think it was about 36 in 2019. And if we've got about, let's say 20 this year, and we get maybe 60 by the end of the year, because, you know, we're not quite halfway, but let's just say, you know, to keep the math simple, it goes to 60, maybe 70, maybe that's a doubling. Um, but statistically speaking, that might be a slight increase, uh, or at least it's a it's a large increase from the previous year. But however, if you if you zoom out and you look at the number of food processing facilities in the United States, Snopes says there's 36,000. I actually did my own research on this, and according to the U.S. Census Bureau, uh, using the NAICS industry codes, there are, according to my count, 51,000 food processing facilities in the United States. So if you get rid of 20 or uh, 50 of them, even that is less than 0.001% of the total. So to me, that doesn't seem like much. Now, that's what I found. I'm going to put it out to you guys. What do you guys think? Is there a concerted effort to shut down our food supply? And by the way, some people may not know James has a background as a grocer you know, obviously he's an author, he's a friend of the show, but that's one of the reasons we thought we could talk to him. Uh, the, uh, I, I have no, I have no idea, uh, about the, uh, uh, the manufacturing and, uh, in the food business. Uh, and I, uh, I can tell you that the people that make money are the manufacturers and, uh, the retailers mostly lose money and go out of business of the 19 chains that were in operation in the Baltimore area during the 38 years that I worked in retail food, 15 of them went out of business. Uh, in fact, most of them go out of business every five years, but the, the stores generally get acquired by whoever takes over. So it's this big uh, acquisition game that goes up into the distribution chain. And then the, distributors uh they end up going out of business they merge they get swallowed up they get bought uh they blow it up they fail and uh i just 
it might as well be a giant magical black hole where all of this food comes from as far as the grocer that was on my end uh, was concerned. It's, uh, it's always been more of a logistical uh, thing for me. So as far as anything I know about uh, the food supply, it's just stuff that I've learned traveling around in rural areas over the last few years. And it's fragmentary. Yeah, I mean, I have a few more things to say. By the way, I uh, I was just doing that in my head just to kind of make the point. But um, it is uh, more accurately speaking, the number of uh, food um, sh- closures, food processing facility closures out of the total is closer to uh, one out of 2,000. So just think of it that way. So there's 2,000 buildings, one of them burns down. Again, to me, it doesn't seem like a lot, but we'll see what happens. Um, and then I also wanted to uh, give another um, example. So I, I've, I've I've actually heard of Ice Age Farmer before, but this particular uh, event brought his name up a lot in uh, these circles. People saying, "Oh, you should check out his website." And it is a good website. You should uh, definitely uh, watch his bit shoot and go to icehfarmer.com. I think is his website. Um, but he had a map and it showed kind of where this stuff was happening. It looked kind of random, to be honest. It, it, there was no real like concentration anywhere. It was just all over the place. And uh, he was focusing on this article uh, that The Current put out, uh, all, or The Counter, excuse me, The Counter.org. Uh, and they write about agriculture a lot. And I'll link to that. But the contention that he was making from this particular article was that there is a effort from the Biden administration to pay farmers uh, to not grow food. And I'm like, okay, uh, I, I believe it actually, but let's, let's look on for, yeah, well, that's been going on since the depression. I mean, you know, they, the, one of the reasons they did that was they're trying to raise prices for farmers, but okay. So, you know, all right, this guy, he he puts this on his depression. They also slaughtered a lot of livestock. Right. Didn't do anything with the meat. That was another. And they're doing that actually now with, uh, there's an outbreak apparently of avian flu. So they're, they're killing a lot of chickens. Um, but this, this happens all the time. So again, I don't know if this is really all that exceptional. So what I wanted to say about this particular example of the Biden administration paying farmers to not farm, that's true. Okay. But if you actually look into the context of it, it's only affecting about 4 million acres, uh, which may sound like a lot, obviously, you know, most of us don't have, uh, even, you know, one acre. I mean, the average household, uh, I think is about uh, a quarter of an acre, um, the land that the house sits on at least. And the, um, you know, the total arable land of the United States, let's just sort of zoom out again is not 4 million, but 900 million. Um, which is approximately uh, 4 million is approximately half a percent of that. And so again, not that much. And really what this program is actually designed to do, if you look into the details, if you go to the USDA article about it, it's basically targeted at wetlands and things like that, that like for environmental reasons, they want to conserve and the farmers, they would, you know, put rice patties or something on it and kind of, uh, break up uh, migratory bird nesting grounds, et cetera. So what the government does is they pay them on a 10 year basis, an amount of money to not farm it. So actually the farmers are getting paid not to grow because they're, they're trying to like protect the, the, the wildlife areas. 
And some people think that's a big conspiracy. I mean, yeah, maybe, but if it was like affecting half the land, sure. But again, half a percent of half of 1%, uh, I, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. I, and I, I was talking to Nick about this before we started. I'm trying to come at this objectively and this is why I'm asking questions, but I unfortunately get the impression, um, and from people, not Alex Jones actually, but the guy he has on lately a lot, Mike Adams, uh, from, uh, naturalfoods.com, I think intelligent guy. Uh, but kind of like ice age farmer, I think he's got an angle and that he's looking for stories to sort of fit the narrative that he wants to present, which is that they're, they're out to get you. And, you know, we on this show do that all the time. Um, mainly I think because it's true, unfortunately, but in this case, and Mike Adams, for example, he's been talking about the food supply. Also, uh, he was talking about the natural gas and affecting that affecting fertilizer, which obviously can impact, uh, growing food in the future. He's completely correct about that. Uh, and he was trying to estimate like what the potential impact of shutting off the Russian fertilizer into Europe would be. And, he gave a number like a quarter of the world is going to starve. And I just don't see it. I mean, I think that's like hyper, like absolute worst case, first of all, which I don't think is likely secondly, because they don't, Europe does not want to lose their supply of gas. They depend on it for heating and they also depend on it for industry and they also depend on it for fertilizer. So they're they're And there are already signs that they're not going to do that. Um, so that's number one. I don't think it's likely, but number two, even if it did happen, there are alternative supplies. And then going further on particular, you know, this, this guy, Mike Adams, he's talked about this stuff before. I remember when COVID started, he was like, Oh God, everybody, you know, you got a plant right now, you know, the food, food, the food's going to run out. That didn't happen. Okay. So right there, you know, this guy isn't completely accurate. Now it's always good. I think, especially with something like food to lean on the side of caution, because obviously you need to eat. That's not, there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't expect everybody to get everything right. And I think it's fine to say that, you know, be careful and be prepared. And and I do that myself. I mean, I have reserves of food and that's not hard to do, especially if it's cheap. You know, you should get rice and everything and canned food. And, and I recommend that to everybody. But this sort of like panic stuff. I mean, bears is, 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 yeah, well, there you go. Uh, might be good for trading too, but this, this panic stuff is starting to bother me because I think it's, it's revealing the motivations behind some of these people to me that make it look like they're basically just trying to sell you, uh, a, you know, a panic button basically. And, and they're the supplier to, you know, the uh, solution. And I start to suspect their motives, frankly, a little bit. Um, but I could be wrong. And again, wanted to just present what I found, I have a few more things, but I'll, I'll turn it back to you guys. Tell me if I'm wrong. Am I off base here? Well, I don't know anything about farming really, but I do know that the North American continent does have a lot of capability for agriculture and food production. I don't think that North America in the long term is really ever going to be threatened in terms of food outside of maybe some problems that they've set up for, you know, supply chains and stuff for the urban areas. I don't know, maybe in the rest of the world, it's more likely that you're going to see 
Because when you say food shortage, like what what does this actually mean? Does it mean like I I can't get any food, or does it mean like I have to you know change what I eat, or I can't get certain staples, or they become becomes very expensive? I mean, what what? Yeah. Uh, what I, they I, mean, I don't know. I mean, but in practice, I mean, all of these things of, uh, happen. Yeah. I mean, to varying degrees. And pe- what basically people do is like, well, uh, that's 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 out of stock, or that's too expensive. I'll buy something else. This just this is basic substitution. And well, the last time, to my knowledge, the last time that a first world, you know, European country faced starvation was when it was inflicted upon Germany in 1945 yeah yeah it's it's it's, it's generally so, artificial I mean, as a method of warfare yeah. it, it's very yeah ex- precisely is that's my point yeah yeah james um, but yeah i don't i don't really have it. it's not something i know a lot about so you know as far as the technical aspects of food production the uh, uh the grain harvests have been down worldwide for the past three years they're going to continue to be down just because the climate is getting cooler and moister and so much of our grain is uh, grown in places like canada where 30 years from now there might be zero grain crops grown but in the united states there's a race to take as much land out of agricultural production as possible for real estate uh there is three dairy farms were paved over in central pennsylvania to make room for the largest uh distribution warehouse in the world for walmart uh and i just took a a tour of the ozarks in the boston mountains where i was shown that all of the best agricultural land was flooded for recreational lakes for the rich uh, and the generation uh, about when I was born uh, in in Utah, some of the very rare good agricultural land there is being sold off to real estate interests, broken up and parceled out for subdivisions for which there is no water, uh, uh, not adequate water supplies uh, to provide sewage uh, and drinking water needs. And because this country is just about money, but when it all when it all sorts out, um, there's more than enough room to grow uh, food in this country. The uh, I think if you're going to have a food shortage, it's going to have to do with the reduction in the number of parties to control the food supplies. Uh, the freight traffic on railroads has continued to increase over the past three years. Uh, it actually, uh, I was a day behind uh getting halfway across the country. I had to spend a night in Chicago because there were so many freight trains in Nevada and the Midwest that, um, yeah, you know, the Amtrak trains couldn't make any headway. So your freight traffic is, depending on where you are in the country, is between four and eight times pre-COVID level, and it's been there for two solid years now. Uh, but if there's going to be a food shortage in this country, it's going to be engineered so that somebody can make a profit off of the panic uh, that's uh, that's the way i would regard it the as far as the fertilizer goes i was just on a farm in uh in missouri i was living in a little abandoned farmhouse in the middle of a few hundred acres of agricultural land and uh, they are using boiled chicken blood 
for fertilizer because you know the other stuff is either unavailable or too expensive mm-hmm. and there's always something that'll rot that you could right. you know put on your fields to make it grow yeah there's many ways to make fertilizer i mean the, the old nick and i were talking about potash a little bit and that actually term comes from what people would do and they'd you know make a make a campfire or a, a cooking fire or something and they would just take the ashes and, and put it in a pot and uh and use it as a component of fertilizer. The the three elements of fertilizer typically are uh, NPK, which stands for nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, and, and potassium. The last two I may have mixed up, but the the P and the K confuse me sometimes. But the uh, the potash one um, is one of those. And so, you know, traditionally people would just use manure. And, you know, you can go to a local ranch and pick up uh, whatever the droppings are. Oftentimes ranchers will want to get rid of it. And then you can actually uh, make these uh, fertilizer broths or teas as they refer to them by just putting water in it and uh, letting the sun heat it up. And then it actually creates a very uh, nutrient rich uh, uh, supply for plants. But that's a very small scale thing. And that, that's really somebody who's, you know, homesteading or trying to build a, you know, a little, a little garden or something. It's not really industrial scale to the point where we're going to be able to get food at the prices we expect today. It was really the introduction of the artificial fertilizers uh, from the petroleum uh, based fertilizers like natural gas that enabled the explosion in calories per year or per day, I should say, but also per year, uh, to go up from places uh, like 1,500 calories to 3,000 calories today, uh, I would say, on average in the industrialized world. Um, There's a very good website called Our World in Data. You you can actually track this over time that shows how much the the world's uh, calorie intake per day has gone up. It's it's been a tremendous uh, increase. Um, Asia has gone from 1,500 to about 2,500 in the past uh, 60 years and North America, uh, the leader of course has gone from, um, 2,500 calories to about 3,500 calories per day. And, you know, most people know this, or at least I would hope most people know this because if you look on every nutrition label, uh, in the United States, it says, you know, uh, average daily expected amount for a human is approximately 2000 calories. Now that varies if you're a man or a woman, how tall you are, et cetera. But the uh, average is about 2,000. If we're getting more than 3,000 per day, uh, I think that should explain why we're so overweight and obese as a nation. We're more than, more than half is overweight uh, at this point. And so I would also say, look, uh, <laughs> if there's a food shortage, I don't think anybody's going to starve. Uh, you know, we might actually get healthier, ironically. Um, what might happen, though, however, is in the poorer regions of the world, because they don't have as much disposable income. A lot of it already goes to food, you know, about 1%, maybe, uh, maybe not 1%, maybe 5% of the Amer- average Americans income goes to about, goes to food. It's not a lot, but if you go to a country like, uh, I don't know, um, somewhere in Africa, Nigeria, for example, I would estimate, and you can look this up too, but I would just roughly estimate at the off the top of my head, you know, they probably spend about a quarter or more of their income on food. And so food prices double, <laughs> that's a lot of money. That's like, you know, double their, 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 their daily or weekly income. That that's a tremendous hit. You know, if prices double in the United States, okay, it goes from 5% to 10%, but people are not going to be crippled. And so I think the, the poorer regions of the world uh, who already consume much fewer uh, calories 
per per day uh, may actually face some starvation if there is a shortage. But I don't really think that is likely because there is such a huge surplus of food on the entire global scale. People will probably be charitable and there is, um, you know, likely to be something to, uh, to, to address that if there is some shortages coming up. But go to Our World and Data. You can also go to the United Nations if you trust them, but always check different sources. But you know, there's a general pattern that you can see that there's been just an increase year after year of the amount of calories people are able to eat. And uh, again, I'm just not super worried. I would, uh, I would like to point out that Africa is the gift that keeps on giving. Go, go on, Nick. Right, go on. No, no, you please, James. Okay, so, you know, the European elite has, well, for the entire modern span, has loved Africa for a way to displace its lower working class to the point where uh, uh, African pirates were literally invited to the British Isles by the upper class and were allowed to take as many low-class English and Irish people out of the British Isles as they wanted with no opposition from uh, from the naval forces of the king or the queen. And, of course, the uh, people like me, working-class uh, Caucasians in America, have been steadily displaced from most of the places where we originally settled by Africans. So I think if you are the American elite, what you really want to do is engineer some kind of food shortage in Africa, which in no way could feed itself. It has to be fed by uh, people of European origins uh, so that you can get about 20 million African refugees that have to leave Africa. And you could settle them in the United States. And with the average American being a total non-combatant and being 40 pounds overweight, I think the natural proclivity towards cannibalism of the African would make this an excellent series of adventure novels set in the United States. So I would think that if there's a real engineered food shortage, it's going to be targeted at Africa so that our master class can use as, as a humanitarian excuse to import more Africans to the United States, where there'll be plenty to eat. Well, our, our current uh, Af- African yes. brothers so, certainly have more than enough to eat because if you go to any uh, <laughs> fast food joint or mall, if they're not shoplifting, they're eating, and they are quite large. So they can be, they can be inspiration for the fresh off the boats, I'm sure. Hey, I was on Amtrak before the mask mandate was lifted uh, a little bit less than a month ago. And it was very interesting. I was also on rail to Denver, uh, the light rail service at Denver. I stayed with a guy, a coach out there in the Denver area for a week. On mass transit, on rail to Denver, and on Amtrak, the, uh, the people that were in charge, the armed security and the Amtrak conductors, made sure that Asians, Latinos, and Caucasians wore masks. But police officers, Africans, and Amish did not have to wear masks. And I'm totally serious. I was on a train with a few hundred people. 
And uh, none of the Amish were masked up. None of the blacks were masked up. The conductors would walk right by them and tell the other races of people that they had to mask up or they were facing federal felony charges, amongst other things, like being put off the train in the middle of Nebraska. And on uh, the rail to Denver, I was sitting next to a police officer and an African, neither one of which were wearing masks, and the armed security guard was making Asians and whites on the train mask up. Oh, of course, the, the cop was nominally uh, Caucasian. And he kept staring at me because he noticed that I noticed, and he was daring me to take my mask off. <laughs> and I wouldn't. I didn't go for it. But I feel we've oh, already wow, we've really? already got this yeah, we've already got this racial policing thing in place. And it, they even locked us on the train in Denver. They had like three hundred people locked on this train. <laughs> and, and and the whole crew abandoned it and just left the train locked up with all these people on it. Uh, but the they almost lost control of it. And the only people that did not enforce this race-based masking was the handful of African crew members. All the white crew members were real gung-ho on making sure that white people and Asians masked up and Latinos masked up, but the the black hat Amish and the African dudes, they didn't have to mask up. It, It was like really... It was really blatant, so I'm kind of interesting where this is going to go when the mask mandates come back with the next flu season, uh, because it was uh, it was really close to some violence on the train. And I had uh, one conductor told me he's refereed like nine mask fights since the whole thing started. You know, the Amtrak people, the crew members actually hate the whole mask policing thing and they hate wearing them but i I really think we're already tooled up to have like you know the police just focused on like uh you know your people and asians and then just let the africans do whatever they want so i think we're already set up for that i mean that's been my experience coming across the country anyhow i wanted to add that uh uh, I think in the assumption that was put forward, Adam, in the question that you asked as to whether or not the, the assumption being that the system would be willing to sabotage food production. And I, I am also skeptical of that kind of thinking because I could see them playing games with distribution and with, you know, real estate development, et cetera. That, you know, the, the, fire economy uh, working its magic but I think the state itself that is so fundamentally based on food production and the, the parasitic state and I read recently this book that actually Hank recommended and I think James if he hasn't read it would probably really like and the book is called Against the Grain Yes. It's written by uh, James C. Scott. Oh, are you familiar with the book, James? Yes, yes. Okay, excellent. Um, well, I would you like to, Can you, do you remember enough to talk about it? Because I think that would actually make for, so essentially the thesis of the book, uh, he makes a number of points, but one of the core theses of the book is that agricultural production, that People were forced into agricultural production um, by 
you know, nascent states because it was the only the production of agriculture and the surplus that goes with it, especially in the, you know, ancient world prior to the technology that they have now was really the only reliable way to subjugate people and to be able to extract from them. Well, I, I certainly agree. I mean, the, the famous Kissinger quote was, if you want to control nations, control oil, if you want to control people, control the food. Uh, I think that's been proven in the United States. I mean, it's one of the most docile populations, I think, in history with uh, every reason in, under the sun to protest and riot. But um, we can go on about that. But I think the fact that people are overeating I think is an indication that people are depressed. Number one, they're definitely not healthy. Uh, but I think the system does know that it's a drug that keeps people pacified. And if I were them, I would not want to rip the food out. It makes no sense. Um, you know, the, the, the factories that it's, the, world, it's the basis it, of the, the, yeah. the idea being, it's the basis of their existence. Like in, in a, from a long historical time scale that the parasites exist because of agriculture and that, for example, there would be no good reason for hunter gatherers to choose a sedentary existence. And the, the, the most likely reason that they would end up choosing that is because they were forced into that. And this isn't just like this all switched over at once too. And the part of the book towards the end that I think something that really made me think of James in particular was uh, what he has to say about barbarians and, you know, essentially pirates and pe people who existed outside, uh, who had never seen a, a tax collector for, and that these this was actually the majority of the world's population up until about 400 years ago. Well, and the, then the, if you started yeah. to create a situation where you you no longer have the world over a sedentary population which is what they're what they've been going for you would start to again open up spaces of, of freedom for uh, barbarians that exist outside of the system so so there's a there's a few things if I may James before you jump in sure. that I, I wanted to respond to uh, Nick and and I agreed again generally with the, the sort of notion that there is a way to control people with uh, with food um, I definitely believe that. Uh, one um, one thing you said about the hunter-gatherers not preferring a sedentary lifestyle is interesting to me. I don't know uh, what that transition was like, but what I can say from my own limited experience attempting to grow a couple things in the ground or uh, go hunting or whatever or, or carve out a homestead, etc., is that physical work and the, the life of a hunter-gatherer and watching survival shows and things like that is exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting, and it takes a tremendous amount of energy to go hunt your food every day. Uh, and this, this is why a lot of people died. This is why if you didn't plan for the winter correctly, you died. Uh, this is why there was a tremendous amount of uh, focus on division of labor where the women would gather, the men would hunt, and they had to prepare and, and save up for winter. What happened with agriculture was that it became much more efficient and it freed people up from that 
that toil. It was a tremendous amount of work. And even with modern tools, with uh, you know compound bows or rifles, you can kind of make it happen easily. But with with bows and and fire starters and uh, you know multi tools or whatever you've got in your backpack, people today still struggle to survive in the wilderness. It is a bitch and so, the, the the agricultural so, contribution was that it gave more calories for less energy and i think intuitively the people who are going through that transition so, would have preferred oh, agriculture to the hunting okay so he makes so the the point is the author makes exactly the opposite of that case that's yeah, what i'm he hearing out and i'm not i'm skeptical been, of that. yeah he makes exactly the well, no, it actually makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because especially especially when you consider that this isn't like free agriculture either. This is exploitative, exploitative agriculture. So you're going to you're going to be producing more than you would need in order to pay the state. And you're yeah. also going to be subject. You're going to be clustered in population population centers exposed to disease you're going yeah. to be working all day well, that, every day that's sort of medievalism Whereas the hunter gatherer yeah. they just wait let me let me let me finish restating that okay so okay. the hunter gatherer would go to places where there was an available amount of wild food and when that became scarce they would migrate mm-hmm and they would go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And that, in fact, their lives, and, and there's other, you, I recommend, the, you you would benefit probably from reading the book too, Adam. You, you might I'll, find some I'll, things interesting. I'll, I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Other yeah. study, other things found were the, um, were the deforma- de- deformation of uh, bone structures that came from the agricultural societies compared yeah. Yeah, to the hunter-gatherer definitely. societies. Yeah. And the, uh, so the presence of disease, the likelihood of collapse, and uh, that the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, when, when people, from a, then from a historical sort of perspective, when people were given a choice, namely when they had an option to flee, they would do exactly that. Right. And that was, the, that was actually more so the origin of a lot of walls in ancient cities. They weren't necessarily for warfare, okay. but for bondage yeah. to, keep, to keep people continuing to work. I kind of agree with that. Uh, James, I think do you remember enough of the book to comment on this? <clears throat> yes. All right. I wanted to I wanted to reply, but but go ahead, James. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll I'll just say something briefly, and uh, Adam can reply. This I actually read a summation of the book. I didn't read it. I read, uh, you know, it's like a twenty-seven page article on it, and the case that he makes, according to the article, is already quite obvious from my historical study and uh, I can explain it and, and with with a couple of different examples and the main thing is people leave out the pastoralists when they look at this we tend to just look at farmers and hunter gatherers because our template is a farmer in on the American frontier versus a hunter gatherer but it was a lot more complex than that and it takes uh, different forms in different parts of the world but there's a pretty common dynamic Right, go ahead, Adam. Well, yeah, I actually like to hear more about what you have to say on that. But just before I forget, the the, the portrait of Europe and Asia in particular, I think are are good uh, evidence for what you're you're saying. The book is arguing, Nick, because I think those were much more heavily populated areas that had uh, a lot more incentives for 
the strong man basically to, to basically enslave the population into an agricultural system, which again, it, it's more efficient in terms of just the energy in calories out perspective. I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, the Roman empire was much more powerful than the tribes that it was subduing it was because they, they didn't have that mastery of agricultural and the, and the logistics networks that were built up around it to produce calories as efficiently as, as Rome did. Now, obviously that, you know, didn't go on forever, but at a time that was a key component of Rome's might was that their ability to, again, subdue the population with like grain, you know, bread and circus is where the, the term comes from, uh, but also, you know, using the land and uh, as a weapon and, and as an incentive, uh, but also, yes, as, as a way to control people for sure. I, and I agree with that. Um, you know, medieval England, you know, there were a lot of, uh, you know, serfs. I mean, Russia, the history of serfdom is, is I think pretty, pretty well known. Asia, certainly that's true. Um, I guess, you know, a difference between the American frontier and that was that there really was land that, you know, it was stolen from, you know, the native population, sort of. I mean, they weren't really using it very effectively. Again, hunter-gatherers, right? They didn't have the ability to create an industrialized army to combat that that onslaught of people who were agriculturally based, who were more efficient at producing calories, who outcompeted them. Uh, but the frontiersman also had a, had a period where he basically was his own master where he could run his own farm his homestead that was a very unique time in, in history and it was true in south america as well uh and central america when the europeans colonized because it really was this kind of frontiersman farmer that had not been the case for thousands of years really anywhere else in the world um, and so it's it's good to keep in mind those those different types of farming activities um, but I see your points on how that can be used to control people for sure. But I still think that agriculture is, if you're going to have a large population and you're going to have a civilization that is industrialized and specialized and able to conduct modern warfare and et cetera, you do need to have agriculture. There's no, no question about it. You could not support a population the size of our current population with, uh, with hunter gatherers. Yeah, well, there's no disputing this. That's, well, that's the, that's, he would make the whole point is that, so yeah, the industrial state, et cetera, had to grow out of the state and state form and agriculture was essential, essential to state formation. And the, the modern state can be, have its origins traced to agriculture. And I want to clear up also I, what James was getting at a point I, I should make as well from the book, uh, namely that, no, it's not an either-or distinction between a pure hunter-gatherer and an agricultural society because in one of the misconceptions is that uh, this the agriculture was only developed after you had a state, some, some kind of, you know, nascent state formation, rather the techniques themselves, I should say. And the reality is probably much more likely that you had people who were well aware of these types of techniques and they would grow things, but they would use that to supplement their other, you know, wild foods that they would be harvesting. Uh, And that would be, it would be a reliable source of calories, but it also would not mean that they're, that's what they're doing all day, every day. And it also allowed them to be mobile, right? They're not investing in their labor and time into something that they're going to have to stay with for their entire lives and lives of their children, et cetera. But yeah, uh, James, would you like to 
to continue to address this point? Oh, sure. Well, it's a, it's a huge subject. I've done a few big books on it that still aren't even published. You know, they're still a year or two down the road. It's the areas project. But the, uh, the ability for grain-based civilizations to impact hunting-gathering civilizations is about zero. Uh, across Europe, there for 1,500 years, the uh, valley-based uh, farming uh, cultures were not able to penetrate the forest. They would war with and trade with, ultimately, the hunters and gatherers. And there was a very long period where, uh, where neither side was able to dominate the other side. And North and South America, the... Uh, Grain-based civilizations uh, in the Andes, in Mexico, and uh, in the southern United States, and the Mississippians, they were utterly incapable of denting, uh, combating against the, uh, the hunting and gathering cultures. And the American frontier frontiersman was utterly incapable of dealing with the American Indians. Every single war against the American Indians was won by American Indian allies. So the, uh, the what really uh, takes the farming, the farming culture, the mother goddess cultures of the Near East uh, and the Mediterranean and boots them up into a civilization is the third population the pastoralists, the people who have a lot more in common with the hunters and gatherers in the forest, but they live out on the steppes and they ride horses and they herd various types of livestock. These people always successfully conquered grain-based civilizations anytime they wanted to. And even after they did so and formed a hybrid civilization with them on the top of the pyramid, their hardier cousins 200 years later would sweep in and do the same thing to them because they would start to become decadent. Uh, this is probably uh, best reflected by uh, life expectancy and stature. Uh, a person, the hunting and gathering population in, uh, in the old Stone Age in, uh, in Europe, the men would be six feet tall. And they could expect the web to be 35 years old, despite having to make a living uh, killing large mammals. They also did a lot of fishing, seal, seal hunting, and so on. And they used skin boat technology. Their counterparts, uh, thousands of years later, in uh, 1250 in England, grain farmers that had no meat in their diet, although the people that owned them ate plenty of meat, their life expectancy, if they made it to age five, not their expectancy at birth, was 23 years. If you were a farmer in England in the 1200s, not only were you at best five foot five inches tall, uh, you could expect to die of injuries, overwork, and disease, even if you were the hardiest of your population by the time you were 23. Uh, if we go forward to the Zulu Wars in Africa, uh, in the 1870s, we have your six-foot-tall, meat-eating, pastoralist, Zulu. He's not so much a farmer. His women will do some supplementary farming, but he is primarily eating cattle and consuming milk. Uh, he's about six feet tall. He is fighting British officers who are five foot, 11 inches tall. 
and they eat a mixed diet, they are at the top of their civilization. They're the aristocracy, they're the descendants of the pastoralists that came out of the Eurasian states and conquered the grain-based civilizations. And the person that's doing most of the fighting and dying is a five-foot-five-inch English subject who's not eaten any meat through his life. He's been fed on bread since he was a little tyke, and he is in the ranks underneath the English aristocrat who physically and culturally has a lot more in common with a Zulu chief and the Zulu warriors than he does with the man in the ranks who he hates, by the way, and disrespects and whips at every turn. So if you look at the physical stature of the three largest groups of people on the planet when anthropology really got kickstarted in the mid-1800s, Plains Indians, uh, Polynesians, and Bantu pastoralists, not jungle-dwelling, yam-eating people, but men that essentially lived on foot, much like the early Aryans did that conquered the Fertile Crescent in Europe about 2000 BC. So the magic of civilization is, is you take the pastoralist with his horse, that's kind of small, and his cattle, and his sheep, and his goats, and everything. They conquered a grain-based civilization, and these men do not have the ability to invade Europe and take out the hunters and gatherers that live in the forest because their horses cannot survive in the forest. This, was, this is why it took 200 years to get from the Atlantic coast to the Ohio Valley, and it only took 50 years to get from the Ohio Valley to the Pacific. Uh, because of the situation in a forest with the, uh, with the, uh, with your horses. So you have, uh, once the river valleys are conquered by the men from the steppes with their, with the fact that they're hunters, they're fighting farmers, farmers cannot beat hunters and combat does not happen. Okay. You need something like 100 to one. Uh, odds and better technology. Our modern infantry tactics is all based on how Eastern Woodland Indians used to fight, and they won most of the European wars for the Europeans in the Eastern Wood in the Eastern Woodlands. But once you have your civilization, which is your pastoralist, your horse riding, hunting aristocracy, if you read Xenophon's treatises on how to be a Greek aristocrat, it's all about your dogs and your horses, all this livestock. They also came in with uh, with a war dog. They now have a surplus grain supply that they can use to feed their horses. They don't have to grade them in the far, graze them in the forests in Germany where there's no feed. They can bring grain. And now they can go in and they can eradicate the hunters and gatherers living off of the broken backs of the grain farmers who were never able to compete with the hunters and gatherers in the forest. And they use that surplus from the grain farmers' slaves and they use that to feed their horses, and they wipe out the uh, the hunters in the forest. And this is your Aryan civilization. It actually starts with the pastoralist, the, the man who is a hunter and a herder, and he does not touch a farm implement. And this is why working with your hands in Anglophone society, which is like the, the longest-reaching expression of Aryan society, it, it's taboo, okay? And, Anybody in business uh, that I had to deal with when they found out that I came up working with my hands, and this is how I knew how to set up a supermarket, they didn't want to have anything to do with me. Because working with your hands 
in even this late stage society. It's it's best explored in Pinocchio. Pinocchio shows you when you're coming out of a slave matrix that work is horror. Work kills you. If you work, you die, and you die young, and you die terribly. So this was not about calories for the farmer. That farmer is malnourished. He's got osteoarthritis in his spine by the time he's 16 years old. He's dead by the time he's 25. It's about the biblical patriarch that's living like a parasite off of him and is living to be 80 years old because he's never worked. He's eating meat. He's eating dairy. He's getting vegetables, and he's got grain. To supplement it, the farmer, his slave, is only eating grain. And the person that said it the best was this bitch queen of Egypt, who in 1230 B.C., right before the Bronze Age collapse, she writes a letter to the king of the Hittites. She says, my husband is dead. I need a husband, and I will not marry one of my slaves. So what does that say about Egypt? It meant that there were only two people in the country that were not slaves, the queen and the and the pharaoh, the king, she demanded one of his sons because when you saw the Bronze Age collapse was really about that uh, that whole arrangement just going south and imploding. And it was a cross-national crisis between the rulers of nine different parasitic empires uh, whose uh, their grain slaves underneath of them Many terrible things happened to them, and then the rollers went down on top of the pile, which I think goes to today why we've got all this freight sailing around the country, warehouses are full, and some warehouses are not allowing distribution to happen. Uh, so I think uh, I think Nick's right. The elite, they're not going to discourage food production. They're just going to hoard the surplus and use it to starve certain segments of the population uh, into compliance because now the slave in the postmodern era He's a slave to grain. He's not the slave that grows the grain and then dies of malnutrition eating nothing but grain. Uh, he's now he's now the big fat American land whale that's like uh, enslaved to the cheesesteak sub, and you keep him in line that way, you know, because things are automated. But it's really complex. And uh, uh, after Adam had, and you guys have something to say, I can give you the African iteration of it too, because the history of Africa. Uh, was pretty similar with agriculture uh, to the old world and the new world. Pretty much the same thing happened everywhere uh, with agriculture, and people don't under that. No farmers with rifles went out and defeated the Native Americans and took their land. Did not happen. Okay, did just didn't happen. Okay, they gave guns and powder to some other tribe savages, and they took care of business. When Black Hawk defeated every American army that was sent against them. And then when he finally outmaneuvered the American army and all of his squaws swam across the Mississippi with babies clinging to their back, <laughs> they were all killed on the other side of the Mississippi by Sioux warriors who were being paid nope. by the United States government. Okay, so, you know, our whole mythology is wrong, like all the way down the line with this. But um, And the other thing is, is hunting and gathering is really tough in the world that we have now because it's been uh it's been reformed around agriculture uh so a hunter and gatherer post 1850 anywhere on the planet has already been pushed into the worst lands for his lifestyle and even the forest that you have just don't support uh they don't support the wildlife that you don't have the nut trees the eastern forests have been completely transformed um you know over a couple hundred years so sorry for going so long but it's just a huge deep subject that you know the, uh we don't have the tools to examine it for the most part 
Yeah, Nick, I would did, have you, two did you want to go ahead? That as far as the disappearance of the. Yeah, I just wanted to add something else that I know is. I haven't read uh, James uh, C. Scott's other. It's actually, I think, considered to be his big book. It's uh, Seeing Like a State. But it, in it, I understand the thesis to be that uh, the one of the most essential tools of the state is really just cataloging being able to count correctly and he gets into it a little bit and against the grain as to the ability like power necessity the power of the state necessitates accurate records of the subjects i mean it sounds like a simple thing but it, when you think about it it's actually very significant because we do live now in a world where there are no really no more frontiers there's a few pockets in some places in the world where there's people who have eluded being counted and being taxed and being, you know, forced into bondage. But more and more with the technology now, the disposal of the system, it's becoming the case that they're able to they're able to count everyone, everything fairly efficiently. Sewage in the writing, cuneiform, at least in the Middle East, was, uh, and linear A and linear B in Crete, these were really just inventory systems that uh, evolved into uh, phonetic systems. So I, I just wanted to say, um, I love the, uh, the detail that James has historical, you know, references and, uh, the understanding of the North American Indian wars and against the white settlers, I think is, is great information that I think a lot of people, including myself are not uh, that familiar with what I will uh, observe from hearing what you've said. And also uh, going back to, I think what we all observe today is that there was obviously a tipping point. There was a point at which these hunter gatherer warriors uh, who arguably were good at fighting because they were hunting so much. Uh, there was a tipping point where they did lose. And I, I think on an individual warrior to warrior basis, I think there is a reasonable case to be made that they were better fighters. However, if you look at the system of system A versus system B, the system at which the North American Indians or other hunter gatherer civilizations were fighting under was clearly inferior to the other system. It may not have been on an individual basis, but this one system overwhelmed the other system. And I don't think that's disputable because if you look around the world there, there's no powerful nation that doesn't use agriculture. So that's all I wanted to say just in reply. Oh, well, to the, yeah. Well, this is one system was better able to, to organize and deploy resources because that's the basis for its existence. Well, once the system that succeeded was the one that didn't care about its people. Between two and four million European boys and youths were worked to death, wiping out the forest that the European military was incapable of penetrating. Okay, so right. you've got a mass grave in the eastern United States that's totally unrecognized, but this is what, it, and this is what they did. The first, uh, the first and greatest U.S. military disaster was engineered to create taxation in the United States by George Washington and other conspirators, and also uh, 
to wipe out the first American military uh, that this that this nation has. They uh, they had a war debt with European nations. They wanted to be a world player, and they picked a fight with a small nation of Indians. They rounded up every man that could be put in a uniform. It was uh, about 850 American men, and they marched them to their death, and they were slaughtered almost to a man as a pretext to create taxation and a standing national military, even though they promised not to create a standing national military because of it. But the real tipping point was it's it was the Native American tribes selling out. Number one is uh, they actually depleted their own animal resources in order to get their hands on industrial technology. Okay, this is what they did. They, 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 they wanted the tools. They wanted to bring a brass pot home to their squaw so she'd stop bitching at them or well, whatever. So they actually, if you read Robert Robert Rogers, the, the guy that started the U.S. Army Rangers before there was the United States, he took 50 men to a place called St. Francis in Canada and annihilated a village in revenge for some attacks on uh, on New England. They could not, he actually had to get this fat woman and cut her up and feed her to his men because they're, and these were the best hunters in New England and some of them were Indians because there was nothing to eat. There was nothing to hunt. The beaver wars had depleted the tonnage of furs that was removed from the eastern woodlands was ridiculous and it was wasn't done by europeans it was done by the indians so that they could get their hands on goodies from the europeans so uh, at any given time there were always more indians fighting on the side of the europeans than fighting against them that's just a rule across the board it was a rule that was never broken okay so you can't find an indian war where there weren't more indians on the side of the Europeans or the Americans. It just didn't happen. You know, so it was just the Indians fighting each other for, you know, for the civilization. So, and it, 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 it bounced back through. The uh, revolution in European infantry tactics actually came from working with Native American scouts in these different wars. Uh, Sharp's Rifles was a, a nice series of historical novels written about using American rifleman techniques in the Peninsula War against uh, French columns that fighting on the Napoleonic model. You know, so for that couple hundred years, you had a cross-pollination. And besides, uh, over half of the Indian warriors were just runaway Irishmen and Englishmen that were just living as Indians. But they are de- they're going to be even more enamored of the technology. Uh, so they're now actually part of the extended civilization because they're used to the technology there there were entire tribes that fought for britain france and later for the u.s government just so that they could get uh clothing and blankets because they had wiped out all of the fur-bearing animal animals that they used to use for clothing you know so the, the tipping point's really pretty early it's about in the 1670s when all these tribes decide that they hate each other so much that that they're going to uh, they're going to sell out their way of life in order to be able to defeat each other, you know. So and it's it's actually it goes to tribal gift giving traditions. They would uh, uh, 
uh, it was if you gave things to people, a, a, a chief in a tribal society does not accumulate surplus like our leaders do. He gives everything away. So in order to corrupt the tribal society as a mercantile society, all you have to do is come in and start giving gifts to people, and they regard you as a father figure because that's what a chief is. Even the Mongols and Alexander the Great did that. That's an ancient tribal thing that you know, the best military leaders in Western history also did. Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, we kept anything for themselves, nor did it on. They gave it all away. That's how you kept that type of tribal war machine going. You know, so uh, the genius of the mercantile society and colonizing uh, different areas that are actually really tough military operation zones is you just come in and you just start giving stuff away. And then those people do all your killing for you. You know, it's uh, it's pretty simple. Have you uh, seen, read or verified the allegation that the one of the big reasons the uh, North American bison, often called buffalo, uh, was uh, slaughtered effectively in the uh, plain states was to actually starve out the the native tribes uh, oh, as opposed yeah, to just collecting, collecting, you know, the food itself, but just actually to starve the people. Yeah. yeah. And it's it wasn't it wasn't just to starve them out. I mean, it hurried up the job by 10 years. If they hadn't wiped out the bison, it would take them another 10 years to kill all the last of these savages. All right. So uh, and they would have done it by using the other savages to do it for the most part. The uh, 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 but they also want to get rid of the bison because they really weren't manageable herd animals. Uh, they want to replace them with uh, with animals that were already domesticated that rather than having to figure out how they were going to domesticate these things. A battle of Adobe walls, I think, was actually buffalo hunters kicked the shit out of the Apaches, you know, because they had uh, uh, they had really good heavy rifles. On some stuff also that James had said earlier, and it all dovetails nicely with this book that I've been referencing, and that's the relationship, the somewhat symbiotic. James James said it actually. The, the uh, hunter gatherers were. Remember the words he used exactly, but that they were able to get sustenance from a bit from raiding the implication being from raiding the uh, grain-based subjects, and this is a point that Scott makes in his book as well that there was a symbiotic relationship with the barbarians and the state in that they would exist on the frontiers because they would be able to uh, come in and. Uh, liberate some of that surplus the problem I'm wondering, with, if you could go into more detail about the okay. relationship so the uh uh the the ruling class comes from the steppes in eurasian society the underclass uh is the people that were living under the mother mother goddess and you could see where essentially almost all of the ancient goddesses were formerly you know, the leading deities of the grain farming civilizations that then became the raped wives of the sky gods that came in. And you can see wave after wave of this uh, in the mythology. There was one, but there was also, uh, there was also a period of intermarriage and alliance between the hunters and gatherers of the forests and 
the hunting herders uh, from the steppes who were coming into the river valleys. It wasn't just the fact that the uh, that the hunters and herders with all the grain surplus went in and wiped out the hunters and gatherers in the forest. If it took the pattern of more recent wars, which it probably did, then half of these guys got wiped out and the other half of them went to work for the aristocracy of the mixed civilization. A figure that's purely Aryan would be Achilles. But he's also, he's a spearman, he's a confrontational warrior, but he is also the half child of an indigenous forest deity that's a female deity, uh, silver-footed Thetis. Uh, and he also gets eaten alive by the civilization he's fighting for. I mean, the Iliad's all, it's really the war to kill Achilles. The, uh, the man that survives this war and actually survives the, uh, the skullduggery of civilization and the ill will of even the gods is Odysseus. Odysseus's weapon was the bow and arrow. This was the weapon of the forest-dwelling hunter and gatherer. Uh, and it was also a weapon that was used originally by the aristocratic class that came in off of the steps and, and would be in, in future, for instance, the Scythians that, uh, that uh, defeated a couple of uh, Persian emperors. Uh, they, they were still using this bow and arrow. So there's a, uh, there's a coming together of the hunting and gathering and the hunting and herding mentality with the aristocracy. Uh, over top of, uh, of their grain slaves. Now, once you get something like, uh, Adam referenced the Roman civilization, they had, a, they had a vast capacity not only to grow food, uh, uh, but to transport it. And they had, uh, they had highly successful armies that generally served under very moody, mediocre to poor generals. Now, early on in the Roman Republic, their soldiers, their legionnaires, actually were farmers, but that went away under the empire. And what they fed their legionnaires with was grain for most of the Roman Empire, almost all of it, in fact, uh, by the time of Claudius onward. Uh, the Roman legionnaire is fed by grain that is produced by slaves. He's promised to farm on the frontier when he retires uh, to form a, a local militia that's going to be able to keep back the barbarians. The interesting thing is, uh, by uh, the time of uh, the Antonines, by the Pax Romana, uh, when we look at the column of Trajan, uh, not only are Trajan's legionnaires Germans, and Celts, they are barbarians that are being fed by grain that is produced by Roman slaves to keep to prop the Roman elite up. The uh, personal bodyguards of uh, Vespasian, for instance, they're, they're German warriors. I think Caligula had German bodyguards as well. The, uh, the actual soldiers that are fighting in your civilizations to support the ruling elite in your civilizations uh, from the grain produced by your slaves, they're barbarians. So eventually they come in and they take over. You know, these are your military contractors and all these late stage grain based civilizations. They have to go exterior uh, for their military manpower because a grain slave does not make a good soldier, no matter what American romanticism says. The, uh, the 
uh, same thing happened with uh, the Diodaci, Alexander's successors. They have more and more, they're hiring barbarian mercenaries. In fact, not only were uh, the Roman legionnaires largely barbarians themselves, but they were becoming combat engineers by the time of Trajan, around 114 AD. And the men that were actually on the point of the spear doing most of the killing were actually barbarian auxiliaries. The guys that kicked in the gates at the siege of Jerusalem, which I'm sure Nick would probably be happy to read about, uh, I think in, in 17 AD, they were actually uh, not Roman legionnaires. These were auxiliaries from different parts of the empire, barbarian tribes that owned uh, a certain amount of service uh, to Rome. So this is the problem that, and you had it, the, the Bronze Age collapse. Uh, archaeologists are having a hard time determining whether or not the Sea Peoples were mercenaries fighting for the Bronze Age empires, or they were barring, barbarian invaders uh, destroying the Bronze Age empires. Well, uh, if they'd read the Roman history, they would probably realize they were both. All right, so, uh, and our civilization in its late stage, you'll probably see the same thing where you're starting to use, uh, you know, outside mercenary contractors uh, for your various wars. And they're going to be completely divorced from uh, the population uh, that's supplying the food. That, that's more or less the, you always see the, the population creating the food surplus also involved in uh, significant combat participation when you have a change in technology, when you have the English longbow, when the Welsh longbow uh, gets adopted as something that you have your yeoman farmers in England use uh, at the end of the medieval period. And then once you get a, a rifle that's pretty efficient and easy to, to use in the beginning of the industrial period, these are periods of time when you can successfully field a military that's borrowed from your slave population that's also producing the food. But it only happens during these periods of uh, relatively brief windows where you have an efficient new military technology that doesn't take a lifetime to master. It takes a lifetime to master certain weapons, but when you come across the new technology that can be mastered in a few years by a guy that grew up as a farmer, uh, that's going to be a lot more physically fit than some scumbag from the city, then the fact that you can get a whole lot of these guys and then use barbarian scouts to get them to where the barbarian enemies are, well, then that makes a temporarily efficient, uh, you know, uh, sea change military, but then that will be supplanted soon enough by a return to the mercenary professional army uh, that lives off the backs of the food producers. So, you know, it just goes in cycles like that with uh, with military technology. And before we're done, don't let me forget to cover uh, the rise of the Bantus. Okay. <laughs> Excellent, James. I wanted to make i have a couple things i wanted to ask you about uh very quickly though we actually covered uh the iliad and we, what you mentioned made me so if i recall correctly uh Odys i think it was odysseus who the other person who did not survive the war was of course hector and i i yes. think it was odysseus that comments that uh hector was a tamer of horses uh, yes. Do I have that right? And do, yes. do you, what is the do you see a significance as to Odysseus's respect for Hector in light of what we've been discussing? 
Yes, he's the aristocracy. So uh, when you're talking about uh, uh, the people of Ilios, uh, of the, the Troad, uh, the, the Trojans, uh, they're a real old Aryan aristocracy. They never really took to the sea. Uh, Odysseus uh, and a lot of the Achaean alliance actually represent the people who uh, caused the Bronze Age collapse. And now Walusa was the ancient iteration of, of Troy or Ilium. So uh, the story of uh, the Iliad is really uh, an outtake of the Bronze Age collapse, where you have uh, Odysseus is from the island of Ithaca. He's a pirate. Uh, he's one of the sea peoples. And Achilles is kind of like a bastard. He's like half uh, him and, and Menelaus and Agamemnon. They're kind of like half like Hector and half like Odysseus uh, in, in this alliance where, yes, they're horse-owning aristocracy, but they've married in to, uh, to, uh, to this more piratical Mediterranean thing that's really shown in the Argonautica, the story of Jason and the Argonauts, and the character of Heracles. So uh, the Trojans were the pure, real article, the vestiges of the people, uh, the Aryans that came out of the steppes and took over the, civil, the grain-based cultures and raised a Bronze Age civilization. Odysseus is a perfect example of the guy that kicked in the door that was helping one side in this feud between these different Bronze Age civilizations. And in the end, all the civilizations go down to destruction, and the people that uh, are left, and they found the basis for the next civilization of arise after a few hundred year long dark, dark age, which corresponds with a with a solar minimum and a, and a cooling period, uh, would be Odysseus. You know, would be essentially the pirate character. And uh, according to Roman legend in the Aeneid, the way that Romans got started was they were refugees by ship of Aeneas, who was a minor Trojan hero, uh, escaping uh, the fate of Hector and founding one of these, uh, one of these new, uh, you know, Aryan breakoff uh nations in Italy. So that's, uh, that, that's just part of the cycle. And the, uh, this continues, uh, this continues down through European history, where you have these cycles where, uh, piratical activity is going to intrude upon, uh, uh, the feuding of the land-based, uh, horse-owning aristocracy. I was curious if you had anything I think to, it's a, it, yeah, please, Adam. Yeah, just uh, just regarding Asia, uh, the Mongolian civilization obviously was horse based and was uh, tremendously uh, impactful. Got all the way through Russia and really scared the scared the crap out of those people for uh, for a period. However, the Mongolian Empire didn't last very long. I mean, in terms of, uh, I don't even know if it got over a hundred years old. It's probably less, and the biggest uh, interplay they arguably had was with the Chinese civilization, which was not a horse-based warrior culture. It was much more agricultural-based, and uh, today has become uh, one of the largest and uh, most significant civilizations on Earth. And it's, 
it's often sort of viewed by non-Chinese as kind of this bug hive civilization that uh, has a very unique and very uh, powerful presence, but it, uh, it it's something to behold that it, it's just unlike uh, so many other places that uh, I thought you might have a few words to say about it with regard to how they interacted with the Mongols, which obviously uh, was, or at least allegedly was one of the reasons they built the great wall uh, and how the Chinese outlasted uh, the Mongolians, even though their empire didn't ever get as uh, extensive as the Mongols. The, uh, the, the Chinese civilization dealt with thousands of years of barbarian invaders from the north. And early on at the beginning, uh, if you go back to the early Chinese, earliest Chinese poetry in the mid 300s, uh, BC, at the time that Alexander was pushing all the way to the Jaxartes River uh, to the f- furthest expanse of what the Chinese knew about uh, through the Taquamekin Desert, that they would actually run caravans. Uh, there was a point in time when Macedonian and Chinese people actually had intercourse uh, there in, uh, in Central Asia. If you read about, uh, read military poetry from the 330s BC, in uh, China, it sounds just like the Iliad. It's spear fighting from chariots, and so this is. And you have uh, you have graves uh, in Mongolia and Siberia. Now they're uh, still unearthing plenty of these ancient Scythian graves, and this is the homeland of this Aryan war culture. Uh, these these guys on horses, uh, the one Scythian king bragged to Darius the first that if you find where my grandfathers are buried, I'll stay and fight you. Until then, you can keep chasing me, okay? Because I'll just come back. And he was happy because he had successfully raided the Persian civilization. Because that that horse culture, which was an Aryan horse culture, went all the way from the Hungarian plain to Lake Bacal in Siberia. Now, these same groups of people over and over again invaded northern China. The Mongols never took southern China. That was a whole separate thing. There's a man that wrote a book called uh, Plagues and Peoples about the contest that he viewed. He's a doctor that wrote in 1974 between macroparasitism and microparasitism. In other words, macroparasitic civilizations would have a hard time competing with microparasites in the tropical environment. And the Chinese civilization always had a hard time penetrating down into Indochina. The Mongols were not the last nomads to invade and conquer northern and central China. The the Manchus did it. If if you're I know a bunch of guys that are really into like Kung Fu movies. I mean every Kung Fu movie is about like the, the Wing Chun Cantonese guys that doing their gangster fist against the Manchu long fist stylists that do like horseback kung fu and you know, and the karate guys are all talking about how the horse dance is based on fighting on horseback in China and everything. So you have this entire uh, there's this entire pulse in China that has to do with the periodic invasion and conquest by the horse barbarians out of the north, and then their eventual expulsion. And with the Manchus, they didn't get expelled, I think, until like the 1920s or 30s. And uh, the, the Mongolian, the various iterations of the Mongolian Empire lasted about 200 years. Okay, but it just, the game changer with them was firearms. 
the real important thing about firearms is that finally you could reach out and touch these guys on the horses that had bows that shot further than your longbows that you shot from foot. And uh, you couldn't fight these guys with a muscle-based, uh, slave-based uh, army. Because, you you know, guys that are raised using their weapons from the time that they can walk when they're little toddlers, you just can't. It's, it's like fighting. You can't take a guy that learned how to box when he was 13 and put him in a ring with a guy that learned how to box when he was five. It just doesn't work. You know, so if you look at in different, different types of combats when they're dominated by a certain group of people, like let's say in Missouri or Ohio or Pennsylvania with wrestling, it's because that group of people... They start their boys out doing it when they're five years old instead of waiting until they're 15 years old. Uh, so the uh, China's actually a hybrid civilization, just like Europe is. It's not just a rice-based civilization. They've done a lot of grain farming further north. And uh, they have uh, just as an extensive history of barbarian horseback invasions as Europe in the Mideast. There was a great book called the People of the Steps, which was a Dorset Press publication around 1990, that where the historian actually went over all the different iterations of invasions out of the steppes upon different civilizations from China to India to the Near East to Europe. And it was a pretty constant 300-year, every 300-year thing. I mean, we had, uh, <clears throat> you had, the Scythians uh, did a lot of damage to the Persian Empire. Then you had uh, the Huns. Almost as soon as the Scythians disappear, you have the Huns. Then after the Huns, there were other different waves. There was the Magyars, the Hungary's uh, named after the Magyars. They're the bad guys in the Ring of the Nibelung, I think. There are the... Uh, the Pechenegs and the Cumans, there's lots of waves of not even Asiatic, but uh, Aryan or mixed Aryan Asiatic peoples coming out of the steppes and invading different uh, parts on the littoral there. And that goes all the way up. I think the last Magyar raid into Italy was, and, uh, was around... 997, which is about the same time that King Otto of Germany defeated the Magyars in Germany. So, uh, and, and then 200 years later, the Mongols come uh, all the way into Hungary yeah. and they just wipe out everything before. Them. So it hasn't been that long. And if you count the Turks who took Constantinople in 1453, again, that's 200 years after the Mongols, the Turks are in there, uh, and a half-Mongol, Tamerlane, defeats the Golden Horde in Russia, and the Turks take Constantinople, and in 1697, the Turks almost take Vienna. That, that's, that's right in the heart of Europe. You know, so, uh, and there wasn't a Protestant one that raised his hand against them. It was only Catholics that fought them. You know, and, and the Orthodox. So... You, you go all the way to the heart of the modern period. You go beyond the Thirty Years' War to the late 1700s, the Siege of Malta by the Turks. Uh, you know, they're just using German engineers 
uh, you know, to build cannons for them. Otherwise, they're still a horse people like the Mongols. I think that is uh, 16 to 60. And uh, the Knights of St. John were pretty much by themselves. Queen Elizabeth wouldn't send any help to them. They asked her. She told them to go stuff it. You know, so they were papas. So she wasn't going to help them. So you go all the way up and Oglethorpe, the guy that founded the colony of Georgia, which wasn't a plantation, it was an actual colony. He cut his military teeth around 1710, fighting, uh, fighting under an Austrian prince against the Turks. He actually accepted the surrender of a Turkish garrison somewhere around Transylvania around 1713. Uh, and this was a British soldier fortune, Oglethorpe. You know, he's a Scottish guy. So you can come all the way up to the American period. In the early 1700s, uh, you're still dealing with these guys from the steppes on horseback. And you don't successfully finally shut them down until you have an industrial uh, war machine in, to include mobile artillery and uh, and and uh, a a levy army armed with muskets of you know poorly trained guys that are just dressed up and marched around to get shot. You don't give a shit about them. They're just cannon food. Uh, so that, you know, that horse thing, it, it just, it never went away. And at the same time, Oglethorpe is uh, helping Franz Joseph fight the Turks in Austria. The Manchus are coming over to Great Wall in China and taking it over. You know, so it didn't really go away until probably the one thing you could attack the Industrial Revolution for is that assholes on horseback were no longer able to come in and take over your civilization in just two years. On the subject of the Great Wall, do you, James, accept the conventional historical assumption that it was constructed to keep barbarians out, that that was its primary purpose? <laughs> well, okay. I can tell you that walls in Egyptian cities were constructed to keep the slaves in. Okay, I even had to listen to a historian, uh, a historian, try to explain that those those gates were locked from the outside for the safety of uh, of the occupants, not to keep them in. Oh, I think any wall like that is a two way barrier. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a barrier to keep people that you don't want to migrate outwards in. This was the same thing uh, in Rome. Uh, and it was the same thing with the American frontier. You know, the British experimented with trying to garrison the Appalachians to keep the white trash from flooding over the mountains and get out of their uh, uh, get out of their bondage. You know, so uh, in, in general, my opinion, and I'm not a Chinese buff. I've only read like five books on Chinese history. Uh, I know that that wall was built in different periods, in different sections, by different princes for different purposes. And it was probably a combination prison wall and uh, and defensive work. And it probably worked better as a prison wall. <laughs> but again, the, the best way to keep those people in is just to pay off the uh, the nomads on the outside that, you know, we'll give you so much money for any of our expatriates that you return to us. So I'm really suspicious of walls because 
they, they never work in a military context. They're supposedly just built for military purposes, but somebody always finds a way to defeat them from the outside. No, so I think it's probably some of both. Being used in the context of population relocation as well. Well, the your your workers around. There were uh, there were Chinese legends that the fill of the walls included a whole lot of bodies. So it was in large measure, it was probably a way to work to death. Uh, members of your population that you were not happy with. And uh, ancient civilizations like the Assyrians, the Akkadians, uh, uh, the Peruvians uh, were big on this, were very big on taking tribes that resist colonization, moving them to another location as a mobile workforce, and then trying to work them to death in an area where they don't have a lot of friends uh, to escape to so uh, it's probably a, a triple purpose uh, monument to uh, human exploitation. So to pivot from the Oriental grain slave to the North American grain slave, I wanted to ask you about where you thought you uh, talk a bit about the the myth of the grain slave and namely the, you know, American virtues of work and how. Uh, <laughs> Oh, you're going to boil my blood with this one, Nick. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, well, first, I, I'm, doing, I'm doing this one on, yes. I, I've been okay. waiting for a while. For okay, let's, let's not slight the kings of Wakanda. I'm sorry, the kings of Wakanda. Uh, people are the opinion that sub-Saharan Africa was Bantu forever. All right. Uh, a mere 2,500 years ago, the more advanced North African Bantu tribes that showed up to fight the Greeks on behalf of the King of Kings did not even have iron weapons. Their spears were tipped with antlers. Until 500 BC, most of Sub-Saharan Africa, and Herodotus also agrees with this too, was actually ruled by hunting and gathering capoid people. There's a couple thousand of these people left, the, the Kung Bushmen. I think they made a, a movie about them, The Gods Must Be Crazy. These people always got the best of their larger, lower IQ neighbors. But around 500 BC, some nice Malaysian men came to Madagascar and they introduced two things to the Bantu culture, iron and the yam. The yam gave them the ability to get enough calories to grow their population to the point where they would have a 100 to 1 advantage in combatants against these higher IQ capoid hunters and gatherers, and they slowly pushed them to extermination. In fact, to the degree that African Bantu women have what Richard Francis Burton called a stupendous buttocks was probably due to Bantu on capoid rate because capoid women ha actually have like extra fat cells in their butt. They have like a camel back on their hips that you could like put a whole six pack of beer on. Okay. So just, uh, in, in lieu of grain, what they used was the yam. So Africa went from a place where you just had this small pocket of Bantus around the Rift Valley and on the Indian Ocean, that were t and the rest of the continent was run by these 
smaller, smarter hunter and gatherers to a place where these ga- these captured people were just stuck in the Kalahari Desert, which is the shittiest environment on the planet to be a hunter and gatherer. Okay, so, you know, this is the late stage hunter and gatherers, a population with more quicker access to calories can swamp them with numbers and just over hundreds of years through attrition, finally get the best of them. Okay, so the uh, the mercantile plan for America, when, when it was the utilization of the waste man or the the white trash or the wheat men. That he that John Locke envisioned as a perpetual European slave that would live on a manor and work for you know his sons would work for his master's sons. Uh, this idea uh, came to fruition in Plantation America, where they would just plant people in an area that uh, had not yet been adjusted for agriculture and use them uh, to form an agricultural base there uh, in situations where nobody in their right mind would try to start agriculture for their own betterment, okay, because it's, it, the, the math just didn't work. The, uh, the amount of casualties that working-class Europeans took uh, totally transforming the eastern woodlands into uh, grain and dairy farms was horrendous. So when and I have been able to narrow it down to between two and four million uh, people just worked to death, mostly bachelor orphans, uh, uh, to accomplish that. And that these people didn't do it for their own good. Uh, they did it because they were they were shackled and sold and shipped off to this country. I could tell you it wasn't Africans that cut down all those trees in that old growth forest. It, you know. Well, speak, <laughs> speaking of uh, Bantus and Africans, and I know the uh, the slave uh, descendants in North America, I do not believe are necessarily Bantus. I think they primarily come from uh, West Africa, uh, not uh, Southern Africa, where I believe the Bantus were most powerful. But the uh, 30th anniversary of the L.A. riots is coming up this weekend, and uh, James actually came on our show to talk about the L.A. riots uh, a couple of years ago. If anyone is curious to learn more about that, I would recommend it. Uh, James had a few things to say, but just to close the circle, do you have any um, you have any comments about the uh, the Bantu tribe in America? Uh, we're not done with this part. Okay. Okay. Uh, the so I want to Th- know thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. I, the, I just had a lovely transition, and you had to jump on American it. Grain Thank you. Slave. Yes, but I wanted to finish this part, and I wanted, yeah. especially if it's for you, Adam. I wanted to finish this. The uh, I wanted to talk just. I want James's take on on the lies and the mythology that have been sold to the American grain slave regarding the virtues of hard work that will then be expropriated from them. Well, the, uh, it started with that battle that I told you about that guy named little turtle just wanted a couple thousand acres for his tribe to live on and was willing to give up like the other 2 million acres that they used to live on. Uh, but Washington wanted to pick a war with him so that, uh, so they could form, you know, and once the entire U.S. military got annihilated in a single afternoon, he had an excuse to create taxation. So the uh, the lie 
uh, started out as a promise that we were going to change your condition. The uh, uh, the American settler that was, that was finally permitted in, in the British period, the American settler was not permitted to cross the Appalachians. The British government wanted to keep him a slave. The uh, American government needed the land on the other side of the Appalachians to sell so that they could pay off their international debt. So they made the promise that if you went west and you worked this land, you uh, you you squatted on this land, you worked this land, you took this land, then it would be yours. And you wouldn't be taxed. But you had to plant a fruit tree because they knew it took six to ten years for the fruit tree to bear fruit. And mainly people drank hard apple cider for their alcoholic drink. So this is a subterfuge of Johnny Appleseed, who was really a real estate speculator. But the, the, the lie that was told, if you do all this work, you, you go out here and you, you squat on these people's land and you plow their cemetery over where their, where their ancestors are buried and you plant a cornfield on it. And then when they object, we'll send people to kill them and then you'll be okay. Uh, that, that's a lie because then once the government kills the tribes for you because you planted on their land and then they objected to it, uh, once the U.S. government comes in and murders people for you, they then tax you forever. And then the rich people come in and they change the rules and they say, well, you know, if you cross the Mississippi River and you take their land and you plant on it, we won't tax you. <laughs> and on and on and on. And then by the time you get to the Pacific, the assholes are already there waiting to tax you. All right. Uh, for the protection that... Uh, you know, for the protection that you supposedly need from yourself. So it was uh, it was a grift, and it was really a reason why you had to start the Spanish-American War in 1898. Uh, to take these guys who you lied to their granddad, you, you lied to their father, and you lied to them about the situation. And you got each generation to take risks that most people that want to run farms don't like to take, which is to go break new ground and go to some wilderness and turn it into a farm, uh, then you had to send them overseas to conquer the world and enforce international banking and, you know, monopolistic corporations. So um, it, it's it's a really long grift. It's kind of run its course, I think. Uh, I, think uh, I think now the promise is you're going to get to go to college uh, on the GI Bill so that you can be taught to hate yourself for, for being of European descent and being male. But I think the grift has kind of run its course, which takes us to, uh, I think, what Adam wanted to talk about, the new Kangs. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, that's the, I, I know people that are basically crippled from working three jobs that, uh, you know, I mean, they did it all for some kind of pensions pension and the promise that they were going to be able to vacation across the country and you know now they're not going to be able to buy the diesel fuel to you know tow their camper to a national park i'm not going to be shedding any tears when i have to sit behind them on my way way uh, (laughs) through the forest i fantasize about those things flipping over uh and rolling over off the cliff cliffside i hate those things But I know what you're saying. Right. You work hard all your life. You want to enjoy it a little bit. I, I appreciate that. 
Yeah, so that's, uh, I think that uh, the ultimate. Can I take out a loan to pay the toll at St. Peter's? Is that how that works? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. But, our, uh, you yeah, know, we've gone from. It. At least they'll, they'll, still, they'll tell you that. To get to Adam's. The consumption. To, to get to Adam's question um, and to kind of maybe wrap this into. A yes. circle here uh, the, as to he, he was asking about um, the uh, America's Negro problem which uh, you know we've discussed uh, ad nauseum but I'm curious to, to add on to that in the event that there are because I don't think maybe we understated the possibility of problems in food distribution because mm-hmm. uh, we, we didn't want to overstate it but I can see it being very you know the problems in distribution and the deliberate starving out of targeted areas, uh, I think that's, when I say starving, I don't mean full full starving, but uh, targeted constrictions in order to elicit whatever political objective is, or military objective, really. Uh, how do you see the system handling distribution of a grape drink and uh, Big Macs to the American Negro in the urban areas. Do you think that they will be given any kind of priority? What? How do, how do you see that playing out in the event of a constriction of the food distribution networks? Uh, well, don't forget your strawberry Pop-Tart and your Sunny Day. Okay, it is a, the, the two best sellers amongst uh, the modern Kangley population. Yeah. The, well, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, one thing is that they're, uh, they provide a lot of billing opportunities. So you, uh, it less, and, less and less will be law enforcement billing. There will be a lot of medical billing opportunities because they all have adult onset diabetes by the time they're 30. But in the meantime, they're prone to commit a lot of violence, which is always a system good. If you have a minority population, that commits a lot of violence. You can use it to move real estate. In uh, 2015, we talked about the Baltimore riots before. What made what created the riots, uh, it was a DOJ op, okay? Uh, and and some gangs used it to get their hands on a bunch of pharmaceutical fentanyl out of these pharmacies they raided. What made it a really a uh, a big event was back then the food stamp cycle was only five days long. Your food stamps came out between the 6th and the 11th. Uh, if you look at when riots happen in big American cities, they're mostly scheduled uh, for the end of April, at least in Baltimore, the 68 riots and the uh, and the 2015 riots were end of April, long month, 30 days. Uh, the Baltimore riots kick off on the 27th. Nobody's had any food stamps or food stamp money for 16 days. So you got a lot of pile on. So in the future, if you want to use Bantus to shuffle real estate, it's... Uh, it's advisable to have something happen with the distribution. All you need is the distribution of this money or this credit to go south. You, you could just you could just fake a computer crash or something. Uh, I've been in a supermarket when 
when they uh, when they first automated food stamps, when they went away from print food stamps in the early 1990s, and it was all automated. Uh, one Saturday, every every register in Maryland melted down. We had to spend all weekend in the store just putting the groceries back because all these mamas had like three shopping cart loads of groceries in the line. They all had to get reshopped. So you could just use uh, a uh, interruption in the distribution of uh, the funds that they used to buy their money, liquor, and weed, and uh, just combine it with a small social uh, stimulus, like you know somebody getting shot because uh, you didn't do nothing, and <laughs> you've uh, you got a riot that you could use to move a lot of real estate. So I would I would see the Bantus being used in that sporadically. The main thing I think they're being used for now is uh, is small scale individual violence. I'm having more and more people tell me about workplace violence with Bantu coworkers. You know, a refrigeration mechanic showing up to do a job and then trying to pick a fight with the security guy because the security guy doesn't want him parking in the handicap zone for instance. Uh, so uh, there is, by the way, in the refrigeration business right now, there's a lot of shortages of parts uh, that, that are going on. It looks like shortages are, uh, are more on the hardware end than, than when it comes to food. But the, uh, I think the Bantus are going to continue to be the gift that keeps on giving, that they, that they provide very easy to manipulate. I, I, I'll give you uh, uh, a story that happened to me when I was, when I was in Portland. I was hanging out with these rednecks and Native Americans in a working class bar in Portland. And they're all pro-law enforcement. They're all upset. That, and they're Asians. It's Asian chicks, Native American chicks, and rednecks. You know, because that, that's what kind of guys these chicks like. Because they like guys with jobs and guys with beards. You know, we even got this crazy Vietnamese girl that pets our beards before she goes and uses the poker machine. And she wins, she buys us a bunch of drinks. Well, uh, these two BLM guys came in there. Uh, kind of nice, uh, not threatening, but then they started their BLM grift. They wanted hands out. that They wanted money because they were oppressed. And the Asians and the Native American people were terrified of these guys. Uh, they were they felt really threatened by them. And the one lady told me, she said, I don't know what we're going to do now uh, if big white guys stop defending us because the cops stop policing these people that are attacking us. And she told me three stories of big white guys rescuing her and other Native American women from blacks on mass transit. Uh, so these black guys come in there, there's the little guy that's running the grift, and then there's the real big menacing guy, who I can tell used to be a boxer, I guess his weight, I, I looked at him, he's looking at me, and there was something matter with him neurologically, and I said, hey, how you doing? And he looked at me, and he said, coach, what happened to your eye? Because I, I had a patch on my eye, because it's really light sensitive. And I said, well, you know, I used to box, and uh, I think I kind of got damaged that way, and he said, I know. Uh, he said, I used to box too. You see me box. And I was like, yeah, you used to box at 205 and you still look like you're 205. I didn't know this guy, but I knew he used to box at 205. And I guess his age, right? I said, you're 34. And he's like, yeah. He thought, uh, he came up to me and he said, are you Mr. Carl? And I said, no, I'm not Mr. Carl. He said, Carl Johnson was my adopted daddy. He was my coach. 
you know, so this guy's name is Rondell. He was the only black guy in a rural town in Washington state. He was adopted by a white boxing coach that happened to look like me. And he ends up asking me to buy if he can buy me a drink. And he's hugging me and saying I'm his daddy. And and the other BLM guy gets all upset and storms out because the grift is busted because now we're in this man love session hugging each other. And <laughs> and all the Native Americans and Asians are like white brows like, wow, we're not going to get robbed. This is really great. And we don't have to feel like we're racist. So just for that, you've got a very small black population in Portland and they're largely terrorizing uh, your working populations. Uh, you know, the, these all, all these people I was with were employed, and they're all being terrorized by this handful of guys that aren't even really good at violent crime yet. They're just using their status as legacy system martyrs <laughs> just to shake people down. I mean, I passed a couple of guys at 7-Elevens that were shaking people down at the front door, like black guys will post up at 7-Elevens in Portland and just demand money of white people when they come and go. And the white people will give it to them, but they don't demand it of me. Okay. They, they immediately know what's up and I just stand and look at them and they go away. Okay. But, and I have a friend that does the same thing, but for the most part, uh, just the fact that people from police down to, you know, some Chinese American chick that's a secretary at an office. All of these people feel like uh, this is a privileged population. I mean, you might as well be an if you're any type of person in America that wants to stand up against a black person, you might as well be an Irishman in Ireland 300 years ago thinking about standing up to uh, an English landlord. Okay, so th and that's where it is. And, and everybody knows that's who the police are going to back because the, the pigs are going to back somebody. And since they can't go after the blacks, they're going to back the blacks, right. you know. So I think we're they're kind of going to be like the moral point of the spear, you know, uh, right there. I I wrote a novel about it called Last White Man that was set in Baltimore that's set in 2068 in a uh, uh, in a post 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 Caucasian America. <laughs> but uh so i th i think it's more uh that population now unless they can build the numbers hopefully there's a big famine that's manufactured in africa and we get 20 million africans over here uh and they get handed machetes when they come off the boat and they can just start laying it down okay <laughs> uh that would kind of be ideal from my perspective but uh Unless that happens, because you don't have enough blacks to go around. They're, they're trying to ship them into different places. There's just not enough of them to go around. And they're getting really sissified and wimpy, and they just whine all the time. You know, so uh, I think you need some, like, fresh Bantu blood to, like, really uh, uh, to really kickstart it uh, uh, on a high level. Uh, until then, I think they're just going to be, uh, you know, uh, they're going to be, like, the moral touchstone for the system to come after you. Because you didn't service them, you didn't, uh, you know, you didn't kneel for them. Well, no, I think you nailed it. I think it's it's the it proxy seems, army well, for the ruling class that they can that, that are disposable and they can uh, deny. They have plausible yeah. deniability for actually directing them to ends at which they're actually wanting to occur. Uh, but they they target the middle class to move people out of you know certain real estate zones or whatnot. There, there's another example. Uh, that I thought was apropos 
you mentioned the uh, low level violence. This isn't exactly violent, but it's implied and it's also not met with any uh, in response. Uh, it's this this wave of shoplifting that's been going on uh, committed by the uh, the subject of another Vietnamese uh, American, Andy No, who made his mark in Portland actually originally, but he's been putting out a lot of stories from around the country with um, uh, particular uh, uncovered uh, media events, which basically means uh, uh, Bantu-style uh, media events <laughs> that, uh, in particular, the one I saw today was from Millbrae, California, which is a suburb of San Francisco. And we've talked about it on the show. I think we may have talked about it with you before uh, about the Walgreens uh, closures in San Francisco. They just basically have uh, almost given up completely because of the, the laws are so generous to shoplifting in California, uh, whereby you cannot be uh, detained or arrested or charged or one, one of the three uh, or all of them uh, for anything uh, under $950 worth of merchandise, which, which is a lot. Uh, but what, it, what has resulted uh, as is predictable when you defund the police and or you decriminalize crime is that there's been a, a surge in this type of crime. And there has uh, today or yesterday or whenever the hell it happened, but it was posted, I think, today, uh, this uh, Walgreens and Millbrae, now that they've raided everything in San Francisco, uh, and over Thanksgiving they were going over to Walnut Creek, which is another suburb of San Francisco, uh, they're going down to Millbrae. Uh, and Millbrae, uh, it's by the airport, uh, SFO, and it's, um, it's just a, a suburb of the same people that you're talking about who would be in this type of bar in Portland. Uh, it's predominantly Asian. Uh, I'm sure there's some Hispanics and whites as well, but it's a very Asian neighborhood. And this, uh, this particular Walgreens was uh, raided not by young black men, which is typically what uh, these, these videos that Andy No in particular has been putting out. It was middle-aged black women who were raiding this, this store. And nobody, I mean, I mean, nobody tried to stop them. I mean, if you're a large man and you see somebody doing this, and I, I encountered this all my life where I've just seen these, I don't know, American herd animals. They just, they don't, they don't resist anything. They never stand up for themselves, let alone another person. And I, I was just, I was just scratching my head. It's like, look, you're a large man coming into the store and you see this happening. At what point do you not flip a switch where you're just like, excuse me, you know, what are you doing? You know, like just say something. I mean, they're women for Christ's sake. And I don't understand how pacified people can get. Uh, I guess they do if they live in the Bay Area at this point. But it's like I wanted to hear your thoughts on what's going on with the shoplifting stuff. I mean, uh, I think there was also a, a point at which uh, an entire freight train was ripped apart in Los Angeles by the same people. Uh, and nothing was done, of course. Uh, they had their uh, African janissary show up and you know, fumble around in front of the camera. He didn't catch anybody, of course. Um, and it was, um, he had another example of just this uh, criminal behavior not being met with any punishment. And it's not I, just that, it's, it's being met with support. Okay. So, yes. in, yeah, it is. In, in, two, in 2015, right after the Baltimore riots, two things happened. And they have continued every year since then. And the same exact thing has happened in New York. 
It's happened in Portland. It's happened in Philadelphia. Whenever you get riots, okay, uh, that have been instigated by the government, and they've involved uh, this uh, this African martyrdom thing. Murder doubles and stays doubled forever. Mob shoplifting happens, okay, and it stays that way, and you lose about 30% of your supermarkets. This is why you have so-called food deserts, because you can't have any supermarkets there. I mean, that, and in fact, the supermarket that served as the headquarters for the Baltimore City Police and the Maryland National Guard during the Baltimore riots, that and every business around there has since gone out of business, and that place had failed to support a supermarket for 20 years before that supermarket went in there because you couldn't do it unless you had an on-duty on uniform cop there, all right? So uh, the fact that you are now taking food supplies out of these urban neighborhoods, okay, because if you don't have armed guards with the authority to use force, blacks will loot your store. What that means is blacks then have to move out of that neighborhood because they can't feed themselves in that neighborhood. They've got to go somewhere else to shop. And since they don't work, they will eventually move to where they shop. So this is a way where you do a, a really comprehensive migration just by not letting food sellers and other retailers protect themselves and their inventory because the cops are always going to be there to do their job. Their job hasn't their, their job hasn't changed. They're still going to apply force to anybody that uses force, except for black criminals. Okay, so if I defend myself, and this started immediately after the Baltimore riots, I had a Baltimore City police officer with her hand on her gun screaming at me because I declined to let a 300-pound black man rob me. Right. I didn't hit him. I didn't stab him. I didn't shoot him. I was just declining to be robbed. And he called the cops on me and they came and they did his bidding. Okay. So this is, uh, the, the defund the police thing is just a grift to get conscientious Americans to ask for more police. And then the police are going to come and they're going to stand on your neck. They're never going to stand on a Bantu neck. They're going to have the boot on your neck. That's what they're going to be there for. When you finally decide to protect yourself or your neighbor, the cops are going to come and get you. Because it's not hard for to use force against these people. Okay, They're not even that good at it. The only time, that, they never conquered a country outside of Africa. They only took Egypt twice, and they couldn't keep it. And that was like 2,800 years ago. So you have uh, the... Uh, uh, these people are very spontaneously violent. They're easy to direct. Uh, they're not easy to give instructions to, but they're easy to direct emotionally. Uh, so you can count on them for doing this, this type of violence. Uh, and when it when they finally out use you know outlive their purpose, well, then you just send five guys in to clean them out. You know because they're not capable of any organized resistance against real aggressors. You know, they're just, uh, they're no good at it. You know, that's that's it. That They didn't even conquer Haiti, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was given to them, you know. So the, uh, 
uh, that's what makes them a good proxy aggressor. It's not nearly as dangerous as what the Romans were doing, paying German barbarians to kick the shit out of their own Roman people. Okay, uh, these people uh, that they're essentially subsidizing to chase us around and make sure we never live in the same place for five years. Uh, these people are they're just the Claymore mine that you trigger. They're just the cock trigger. You know, the reason why these violent black criminals have been cultivated by the system is so that when you eventually defend yourself against them, you're an ex-white supremacist. Yep. And here comes the SWAT team. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's very simple. I think the goal is exactly what I was observing and complaining about is that there is such a pacification of the the male the non-black male in america against this type of behavior that that is the sort of that that is the observed goal of this whole thing is that that is the end result of what happens i mean you're you're a large man 200 pounds plus going into a walgreens and you see a a black woman running out with uh you know armfuls of, of baby clothes and whatever the hell she decides to to rip off you could stop her, but you won't because exactly of what you just said, you will get arrested if you actually try to do the job of the police officer who is actually doing the job of pacifying you. Uh, it's it's disgusting. But in a certain sense, for instance, I well, even if you could get away with it, I mean, do you really want to fucking go go to the line for the managers? You know, defend the honor of the Walgreens Corporation. That's why no, I but why don't they do it? You know, they're such pathetic know? sacks of humanity at this point. And and of course, if they raise raise any resistance, you know, they get punished by corporate by corporate HR. You know, which is staffed by whom? You know, white women. Oh, you're and not so, allowed to uh, in, in in retail. It's thirty years ago. It pretty much started. If you even put your hand on the shoulder of a shoplifter to calm them down because they're screaming and yelling, you get fired. Okay. Uh, there's the number one duty of loss prevention personnel is to prevent lawsuits by firing employees yep. that resist shoplifting and robbery. That's it. <laughs> you know, and that's, that, that's going back a long, a long while. I've had, I mean, we had, we had a blind camera angle in a one store, that I worked at. If we had a guy that was going to fight us, since I was a little guy with a shirt and a tie on and glasses, I'd lure him into the blind camera angle, and then Big Pete would come out of the woodwork, pick him up, and slam him on his back. You know, so there's you, you got to have like a criminal mindset to, to even be able to do any type of protection. I was to the point where I was giving this insane homeless guy $20 for every black guy he stomped on Bel Air Road because my employees, uh, white men and black men, were are all getting beat up trying to get to work. I was losing a lot of guys. I had one guy that used to be Wayne Newton's bodyguard. He was a 60-year-old man. He had face cancer, but he could fight. He got attacked uh, by two different groups of young black men coming to work. And the second time, the first time they hit him in the head with a bat and knocked him out, and he still came to work. The second time, he was ready for him, and he ended up fighting off he was black because because of the cancer the chemo he was taking the chemo medicine uh his fists were black from fighting this 20 year old black man and this 18 year old black man okay the cops came and arrested him he spent two he spent the weekend in jail 60 year old man with face cancer gets arrested in 
this was 2009. His name was Old Man Jimmy, is what we called him. He used to be Wayne Newton's bodyguard. He was a professional kickboxer back in the day. He successfully defended himself against two black men, and the white Baltimore City police came and arrested his ass. Okay, you know, so I started paying this crazy Mark, this homeless black, this uh, homeless white guy, to beat up the local black thugs. He knew where they were. He'd come into the store and show me blood and snot on his uh, on his boots, and I'd give him twenty dollars. <laughs> wow, so, wow. So, so i mean this is but like now like when i'm in portland these black guys that post up at the 7-elevens uh the guy you know the guy that i stay with out there okay yeah, yeah. He, he's a big dude he's an animal uh they they make all the other white people give him money in order to come and go they actually run a toll booth outside the 7-eleven you're not allowed to shop there unless they're giving you money that 72nd and pal and a one over on foster uh, but we both punked these guys out. I had these two homeless white ladies that were afraid to go in 7-Eleven. Actually, gave, gave me a standing ovation because I, I punked this 30-year-old guy out that could have ripped my head off. He was a really thick guy, but I just wasn't having it, and I made him leave. You know, and Tony, uh, uh, these, these four black dudes were telling him they wanted to buy his car. You know, he had a 74 Dodge Dart. We're getting out of his car. And he's like, it's not for sale. And they're like, really? You know, uh, I'm going to buy it. You know, how much is it? And he goes over, and these four faggots are all white-skinned caramel mulattoes smoking blunts in his car. And this dude's like 370. He leans on the car, and he says, get some fat white bitches and put them in this car, and it'll be just as cool as my car. (laughs) (laughs) So, So it's like every time they see this dude, they say, my n-word that's what they say he's like basically like all the all the young black guys in in southeast portland they're actually going to him for lessons on how to be uh, a negro and he's a white guy Mm -hmm. that's like how washed out there so the thing is now since we know that the portland pd are not going to respond to a call then i started carrying weapons you know i'll you know i will uh, I will take care of things now. I, hell, I wouldn't even have to run back to his place. I could I could take two hours getting there and stop at the bar on the way, and the cops still aren't going to show up. So ideally, uh, you know, the only way you would get, like, an American society back would be to get rid of police. If you had no police and nobody was going to come and arrest you for beating the shit out of these nimrods, then what would you have to fear? You know, they're only 13% of the population. They can't beat up their own wife. They can't organize worse shit. You know, <laughs> so uh, it's the, you know, that's why I say that the, the enemy is the police. You know, these guys are completely enabled by the police. And Baltimore started in 1968 when the National Guard came in and protected uh, the blacks that attacked the, uh, the Pollocks. In Patterson Park, the Pollocks turned around and beat the shit out of them. So who did the National Guard go after? The blacks? No, they went after the winners. They went after the Pollocks. You know, so that's uh, from 1968 to 1998, East Baltimore, after that, went from being, you know, a a place where your kids could play on the street to a place where you got to live behind bars and hide inside. You know, and it's the police and the National Guard that did it, you know, because the blacks couldn't do it. Uh, they, they tried to beat up some people and it didn't work. You know, so 
I would, uh, if anybody needs any proof for that, I would say that you should take 100 guys from Poland and 100 guys from Ghana and just put them in an arena and give them bats and have a fight and see who wins. Uh, you know, you're going to have like two dead Polacks and 100 dead guys from Ghana. You know, it's, it's the way it's going to go. In the spirit of that, I, I'd like to, I have one final question. I just kind of summarize where we're at here. So if I have this correct, uh, I've, I've been observing life on the North American continent for a little while, and James is very good at covering a lot of distance very quickly. Uh, it seems that basically, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you have this minor nobility of these grain syrup-fed simians who are terrorizing the productive grain slaves with the protection of the pigs, the tax collectors, in the service of a basically an inbred, perverted uh, desert, desert uh, merchant class of rulers. So what do you think the prospects are for some kind of breakaway Aryan barbarians who can then pillage the whatever's left of value from this corpse civilization and restart the cycle? Oh. That you've got to be smart and live like a criminal. That's why the, the whole white nationalism thing was the biggest government grift, uh, maybe in my lifetime, because it got anybody, they could have done something to protect their own neighborhood and tried to get them to vote on it, okay, and think that the system ever had them in mind. There was a guy named Watt Tyler in 1387, tax collector, raped his daughter. So we killed the bastard. And the government had a real problem with that, okay? And uh, he, uh, he, he had, for a while, a successful uprising. He paired up with a, a preacher who was a breakaway Christian preacher, and they actually had the heir to, uh, to the English throne uh, in fear for his life. But uh, Watt Tyler made a deal with uh with the air you know he, he believed that well you know the king really wants the best for us he you know maybe he didn't really want that tax collector to you know rape my daughter well they murdered watt tyler and then they went around and they murdered his henchmen but they, they had to make a deal with him first if he would have been a sucker and he would have just kept fighting then he might have been king okay he was a yeoman soldier you know so uh that you're talking about a system, I mean, uh, back then, at that technology level, the professional military had a very slim advantage over the ad hoc, you know, just go and grab your pitchfork military. Uh, the situation that you have now, I mean, all these Navy SEALs we worship, they're, they're going to make as much money in a week hunting us down as they'd make in four years uh, shooting towheads overseas, so you can't. I've made that actually, point many times. Right, so you, you can't actually like fight that. Okay, you've just got to hide from that, and you got to give it web service and find ways to uh, to fight intelligently against the minor actors that they send after you. And the the one thing is, once it gets to this point, we, we did. Uh, uh, we did reach a tipping point where your cops now are going to be complete criminals. Okay. Uh, 
more so than they have been in the past so in a way that'll make them easier to deal with. Okay. So that, because they're going to be running rackets the cops are going to be busy, uh, basically, uh, raping strippers and then pimping them out. And, and they're, they're going to be doing drugs. They're going to be doing all kinds of stuff. They're going to be shaking down businessmen for protection. So cops are going to be more busy, uh, running their own rackets than they used to be. So they're, they're easier to avoid. And, uh, I've done extensive writing on, you know, how you can kind of, uh, uh, make your own neighborhood a much safer place just by being a guy on foot that doesn't call the cops and doesn't get on your knees when the black king comes by and says, worship me. You know, I mean, it's pretty simple because you, you're dealing with criminals on both, both ends. And uh, the ones that are in your face that have been sent to basically you know, like a guy that hunts bears with dogs doesn't give a shit about his dogs. He knows one of them is going to get eaten. He just doesn't, you know, these dogs are bait, you know, so that he can kill himself a bear. You know, so if you understand that you're the bear and that Negro is just a policeman's dog, well, then you could understand it a little bit, a little bit better and just act accordingly. I, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping that the wheels fall off and they're not able to massively expand law enforcement like they want to, even though a lot of suckers in this country are calling for a, a re-expansion of law enforcement. So uh, uh, you can do it on a small scale as long as you don't have an overt organization, you're not incorporated, you don't have a name for your group, uh, and you just have relationships with people. I, I live with a guy that chews horses for a living down in Missouri. And uh, he makes pretty good money. He's not a rich guy. He gives half his money away. He has his own welfare system. I mean, they're, they're building jails down there to lock up indigenous Caucasians in the Arkansas mountains. Uh, they're moving in people from the Marshall Islands and other Asian countries and South American countries to do all the jobs. Uh, and the rich people want all the poor people out of there. So they're going to lock them all up for getting high and getting drunk uh, after they put them out of work. Well, he's developing his own network. Uh, I was out with his wife and her truck broke down. Well, well, one of the guys that he supports came out and fixed a truck and i shook hands with him he was a, he was a good guy uh he's he's a criminal you know he's got a violent past and everything that's great <laughs> that guy that guy doesn't have a job he's like the homeless guy uh, crazy mark that i used to get 20 bucks for every nigger he stomped out okay uh you know you can develop relationships with multiple people like that if you're you know, if you're able to find a way to make money in a system where a man of your type is not allowed to make money, well, that's going to leave guys with no options but to work for a patron. And you could possibly be that patron. And in some cases, people use me for that guy. You know, they give me a place to live and, you know, they know they don't have to worry about their wife in their house while they're gone. You know, so you can uh, work on informal relationships like that. And like I said, my friend, he has a network of five guys he can depend on, and he works for rich people in a trade. He works with his hands, doing something that the rich people that own horses don't want to do, 
So he also has the option of, if he needs a place to live, uh, uh, he has good working relationships with about 100 people who own ranches and farms. Okay, so and and are doing quite well, you know, so you can uh, you can find ways to make your uh, to build your uh, your really your informal social credit rating uh, in a world in that world. Your, your word actually means something. Well, this is exactly what happened when Rome started to fall apart. It was basically these local yeah. warlords started creating what you're describing. Yeah, and eventually it became its own civilization that went to hell, too. But yeah. You know, uh, feudal yours probably he's not. Um, as the bad as you want to see. <laughs> well, he goes. Uh, this guy took me to Oklahoma to a horse auction, and he actually does work for a sheriff of a county in Oklahoma, and he doesn't even charge the guy. And I said, okay. I said, well, I understand that you probably have a reason for doing that. He said, if there's a grid down situation, this dude's the local warlord. <laughs> <laughs> right so so you know he does free stuff for him now you know <laughs> so it's uh but, and people already live like that in a lot of rural areas you know i've i've found myself living in five different situations like this uh in places in the country and uh with an informal situation so it's uh i find it incredibly I, I, there's something very poetic in a strange way about your friend who seems to be somebody who is spiritually a free man, it sounds like, doing work with his hands for bourgeois luxury horse owners. In the, in the context of this conversation, I find that very interesting. Yeah, well, he, uh, and it's really interesting. I, uh, uh, I needed to learn a lot about horses in a hurry. You know, so I went with him on his jobs and I said, went to the horse auction and made friends with some, some men, like some real working cowboys. They run more cattle in Missouri than any other state, but Texas. Okay. So they got a ton of horses there and you'll never guess what the biggest problem is with being a failure is horsewomen. He will no longer take new clients that are females because you're working with a large, dangerous animal. And he said that horses are, they pattern themselves, their personalities after their owners, and they really need a leader. That's the way they've been bred. And just like he can't stand the Amish guys because they're cruel to their horses, uh, he can't stand the women horse owners because they, they treat these giant dangerous animals that used to be war machines like lap dogs. And the, the horses become neurotic like the women. And that's very dangerous for the farrier. So, <laughs> so he, he actually says no. I've been with him a few times while he said, oh, yeah, uh, no, I'm busy. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I can't show you horses. Yeah. So that. Uh, yeah, no, and I, if I remember correctly, too, in uh, in the Iliad, the Hellenic gods see the horses much closer to their equals than the mortal men and that they would they would talk to the horses and you can only really imagine what the horses on the north american continent would have to say if they were asked what they thought about this decrepit mercantile civilization <laughs> and everything that's passed on this cursed fucking land yes yes and that uh the uh 
the intercourse with the gods for anybody that read the Iliad a long time ago and was thinking about rereading it. Uh, it's really wonderful. The intercourse between the horses and the gods, the way they're used for, for messengers to men and as avatars. And when you say uh, intercourse, was, you're referring to speech. Just, yes, yes. Just to be clear no, for the I, audience. He's, he's wait, not wait. talking about horse girls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> oh, and the uh, the other thing to look for in the Iliad, uh, any of your readers, if you reread it, the mentions of uh, automatons that almost reek of robots. Uh, is uh, is a feature in the Iliad. When you, a lot of people want to skip over the descriptions of the gods and their lives with each other and everything, and get back to the story. Uh, but Homer has a lot to say about uh, you know these Olympian gods, and when you when you consider some of the details, and I only had time to consider it because. I'm listening to these audiobooks over and over again because I essentially can't read. I've I've listened to the song of Rowan about 40 times in the past uh, five months. Uh, and uh, the, the details are pretty striking in some cases. The uh, the automatons that are Hephaestus's assistants, you know, he's the craftsman of the gods. Uh, they really sound like they sound like uh, science fiction robots. They sound like Americans. They, they sound like science fiction robots. These Hephaestus, uh, uh, the craftsman of the gods, actually built these uh, mechanical servants to help him build his wonders that he built for the gods. And uh, they were silver-tongued, and they were intelligent, and they could just be told to do a task, and uh, and they could accomplish it. Uh, so the you have these little whispers of. Uh, maybe uh, a lost technological past when uh, when you read the Iliad and uh, you see the discussions of the way that the gods live uh, in a in a broad sense. It, you could almost get the idea that maybe Homer was, uh, you know, uh, recycling fragments of some, you know, some pretty technologically advanced civilization that had existed at some time in the past. And you know, attributing these activities to to the deities and their mechanical servants, but particularly since the blood of the gods uh, was caustic and would kill you. You know, you could kill a god, you couldn't kill Zeus. You could kill the rest of them, but if they bled on you, they would eat you alive. It would act like white phosphorus. So, so sorry for going off that side thing, but it was just another reason to recommend the Iliad for somebody that hasn't read it since they were a kid. And it goes back to the, you know, the, really the grain food situation we were talking about. That's that's essentially where the uh, where the steps people came into Europe, right there. Uh, the people they conquered, I think the geneticists uh, call them the Anatolian population. Well, that's Anatolia right there. Well. Well, you know, you see a lot of talk about like automation and uh, wanting to re replace the flesh automatons with the fully synthetic automatons. But you got to wonder, I mean, if all this technology has been developed on the cycle of these grain civilizations, uh, if they're really ready to manage a uh, 
an entire population of uh, synthetic machine, uh, synthetic machine race that like bleeds acid. I, I don't know. They might might not uh, go so well hey, for them. I, I think they're going to stick with meat puppets. Meat puppets are cheap. You know, right. but they, they come with their own handling problems. If you want to get to heaven, let me tell you how Keep your hand on the gospel plow Burns it to my soul 